day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out, and you shall grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, and they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgment. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Thank you, Joel, for the reading of the word. Good morning. Um, we, <clears throat> we worked our way uh, through the book of Malachi, and um, we're in the final chapter, and today we'll be looking at these six verses, the last passage written in the Holy Writ of the Old Testament. And so we look at what God has to speak to us through this passage this morning. A couple was on their way to get married in a court. And uh, on the way, they met with a fatal accident. They both died and they went to heaven. And they were waiting outside the pearly gates. And by the way, I just want to remind you. <clears throat> I'd like to remind you, <clears throat> before we get along with the story, that I don't, rem- I don't uh, believe these are doctrines. These are just farcical. So take it in that spirit. So these two people who died went outside the pearly gates and... Uh, And they were sitting and waiting for Peter to show up. They waited and waited and waited. And Peter did not show up. They waited for months. And meanwhile, they started discussing, anyway, we couldn't get married on earth. Why don't we get married in heaven? And so Peter appears after a few months. And uh, they look at him and they say to him, we've been waiting for you for several months. But the good thing is, meanwhile, we came to a conclusion that we should get married in heaven. Is it possible for us to get married in heaven? So Peter looked at them and said, well, nobody ever asked me this question, so let me go find out. Peter goes in, and uh, he is gone for a few months. And these people are still waiting. And meanwhile, the question comes up, and the guy looks at her and says, well, there is this aspect of eternity in heaven, isn't it? And she says, yes. And he says, well, if we get married, then we're stuck with each other forever. What if it doesn't work out? So let's find out if we can get a divorce in heaven. Only then we'll get married. They waited for months. And Peter comes out. And uh, so they ask him the question. All right, it's good. Uh, So Peter comes out and says, yes, uh, you can get married in heaven. I was able to uh, find out that uh, you can get married in heaven. And so they say, but we have one condition now. 
and while you were gone we were talking about this uh, can we get a divorce also but peter please don't be gone for months again we might come up with something else before you come back and uh, and peter says no no you'll have to wait you'll have to wait because it took me months and months for me to find a priest now you're asking me to find a lawyer in heaven <laughs> this is a farcical jab at priests and lawyers but the point of the story is this that if there is one thing people in our generation hate to do it is to wait we don't like to wait why wait at all because we can just google the questions and not wait for the answers we can just order our shoes online and don't have to wait sufferingly in a in a long line on a weekend at a retail store and <clears throat> we can just call up a restaurant and order food or reserve a table for ourselves then wait in line for our turn to come we've been conditioned that way because we want to have it our way and right away we don't like to wait first it was fast food and then instant coffee and then it was instant everything else but our disdain for waiting isn't just the product of social trends or generational shifts it is an expression of something profoundly human it is an expression of something profoundly human but on the other hand in the christian faith waiting on god is something like a refrain in the life of faith in fact don't all of us who wait on god have this refrain in our hearts and say o oh lord we wait for you your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul with all of those centuries of waiting for the messiah the first coming and he really came the first time and now we are waiting for his second coming and the church age almost seems unending but we are sure he is going to come and we have to wait and the apostles talked about waiting for the lord jesus christ in 1 corinthians 1 paul says we wait for the revealing of the lord jesus christ in titus 2:13 paul says we wait for our blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great god and savior jesus christ but the fact of the matter is some christians don't like to wait some christians don't like to wait and often their involvement and entanglement with the world does not allow them to wait they have lost the focus of their faith begun to act and make decisions like the world and when you look at their lives it seems they've forgotten that they are aliens and strangers in this world and they've begun to love this world as their own home and one of the writers put it this way our songs there there's been a shift in the songs that we sing he says he said we used to sing this world is not my home i'm just passing through to this is my father's world so there's been a shift even in the songs that we sing so the questions come up how do i live in light of his coming or are there things i need to remember and do to live as an alien and stranger in this world or better what should my focus be as i live here waiting for his coming what should my focus be as i live here in bangalore waiting for his coming and we have the outline up here 
Um, please follow along as we go through it. But we can only be thankful that Malachi answered all these questions right around 420 BC. If you look at the context of what was read by Joel, we'll see that these verses continue to address the problem that was raised in chapter 2 and that was also raised again in chapter 3. And the problem is this. The Israelites were troubled and distressed that the wicked were prospering. It almost seemed as though the God of justice did not exist and God did not care about sin. He prospered the wicked and the righteous people were just left behind and left aside. And so to counter this scoffing, Malachi showed that God especially remembers those faithful people. He has a special people, the righteous, and in fact, they are his special treasure. And he goes on to show, the last time we studied this, that there's a huge difference between people who do good and people who do wicked things. And God is going to show that very clearly one day. And so today's passage will reveal to us two things, two very simple points Two things about the focus we ought to have as Christians living in light of his second coming. Two things or two things that we ought to focus on as Christians who are living in light of his second coming. The book of Malachi chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. The book of Malachi chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. So in verses 1 through 3 you'll see that you must wait for the Lord to vindicate you in his time. You must wait for the Lord to vindicate you in his time. We must constantly remind ourselves that there is coming a day in the future when Jesus Christ will come in his kingdom and then he will be the judge of the whole world and he will make all the wrongs right. He will make all the wrongs right and he will put everything to rights. That's exactly what Malachi told his audience as well in about 420 BC. The Lord will bring destruction on the wicked but healing to the righteous. And when that day comes, there will be three specific things that will happen. And Malachi lists these for us and let's look at them briefly. Number one, the first thing, the future day of judgment will destroy all evildoers. The future day of judgment will destroy all evildoers. Verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. That day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. It will leave them neither root nor branch. The first thing we see about this particular verse is that there is a day that is coming in the future. It is a day that is yet future, and that is a day of judgment. And that is called the great and awesome day of the Lord. The great and awesome day of the Lord. It will be a day of judgment for the wicked. God has been bearing with the wicked, so to speak. And there will be a day in the future when Christ will come with his kingdom, and God is going to pour his wrath upon all the wicked of the earth and destroy them. And there is a day that is coming. Malachi mentions about the coming of this day four times in these closing verses of this prophecy. And so towards the end of the Old Testament, God is reiterating it for us, for his people. Remember, this is not the end of it. God is going to have the last laugh. God will judge the world and the wicked are going to be destroyed. In fact, the day of the Lord is a concept that is, that is seen throughout the prophetic books. 
It begins in Isaiah, and I've talked about it a couple of times on the pulpit. But just to mention a couple of statements about what the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord was both near, which is at hand, and also something in the future for the prophets. In fact, five of the Old Testament prophets who are working in four different centuries talked about the day of the Lord as something that is near, working out in their own century, and something that is coming way ahead in the future as well. In fact, the prophets Obadiah and Joel talk about it in the 9th century. Uh, Isaiah talked about it in the 8th century. Zephaniah in the 7th century. And Ezekiel in the 6th century. Each of these prophets saw fulfillment in specific events in their own time. And yet, each of these prophecies has a still yet unfulfilled part of it as well. And therefore, the day of the Lord encompasses a number of successive judgments that happen in the world right now. But it also talks about a judgment at the end of the world that's going to come when all the wicked will be destroyed. That's the day of the Lord. And that day is coming for sure. Burning like an oven, says Malachi. And remember, if if you remember, throughout the book, as we studied the book of Malachi, we have seen that there are people in Israel claiming that God delights in evil. What's the point of serving God when we don't get any uh, remuneration for it? When you don't get any instant gratification for it? What is the point in serving God? And Malachi is reminding them that it's not useless to serve God. He is going to remember. He's going to remember all the righteous. And there is coming a day when every word that has been spoken harshly against him will be set right. And God is going to settle the account. In fact, that day is burning like an oven, says. And, he, and, and the verse says, all the arrogant, meaning all those who did not think they need God, and all the evildoers, meaning all those who disobey God's law without any regard, these, God says, he's going to make them stubble. He's going to make them like chaff, and he's going to burn them completely. He's going to destroy them. The future day of judgment will destroy all evildoers, which means God is going to have the final say. God will be victorious along with his people. That's the first thing that Malachi reminds us. Then there's a second thing. The righteous will be joyous and experience complete healing. The righteous, you and I, will be joyous and will experience complete healing. Now follow along, please, in verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness. Now, mind you, it is not S-O-N. People wrongly interpret that. It is S-U-N. The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So we see in these verses that in addition to judgment on this great and awesome day of the Lord, there's going to be blessing for the righteous. There's going to be blessing for people who trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are three positive things that are going to take place for the righteous. And the first thing that Malachi mentions at the beginning of verse 2 is that there will be healing. There's going to be healing. There's going to be physical healing. There's going to be spiritual healing. There's going to be emotional healing. There's going to be psychological healing. All of us who suffered under the wicked, all of us who've been taunted, all of us who have been persecuted and mocked at for our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to receive complete healing when the Lord will come with his kingdom. Then he says, We will be joyous. 
we will be joyous. And then he, he gives this metaphor. They shall go out leaping like calves from a stall. They shall go out leaping like calves from a stall. Uh, the only thing that came to my mind when I read this particular phrase is I remembered my school days. When there was a boring class that was going on and all of a sudden the bell goes off. And it's recess period. How do the kids run out? With joy. That's the, that's the metaphor in a, in a modern day world that is given to us here. We just run out of joy because we have been delivered even from the presence of sin. Everything has been taken away. Thirdly, the righteous will appreciate their superiority over the wicked. The righteous will appreciate their superiority over the wicked. Verse 3, and you shall tread down the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. And on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. In addition to this great joy that Malachi just mentioned, we will have great victory as well. We will have great victory. In this verse, God is reiterating his promise to make a very clear distinction between the righteous and the wicked. He is going to make a very clear distinction between the righteous and the wicked because it is the righteous who are going to be victorious and they will march in victory over the people who have been destroyed. Now, obviously, this is not a literal language. It is figurative language. But the point of the text is that we're going to march in victory. While the other, there's going to be a role reversal, so to speak. The wicked who are now seemingly prospering will be dust in the days to come or on the day of the Lord. And we will be victorious. We are the ones who will hold our heads up high. That is what's going to happen when the Lord comes. And that is a promise that is given to us. You know, when I thought about this, the application that I thought about for us as we live in light of the second coming is that you and I as believers in Christ must do what is right. You and I must do what is right. And what is right is seen clearly in the word of God. The aim of every Christian as a citizen of heaven in all human engagements is to display our allegiance to the values of another world. Is to display our allegiance to the values of another world. You know, let me just uh, talk about what happened recently in the last week. A scholar just alluded to it about the elections that happened in the United States. Uh, but but before we uh, go to the elections, I'm just reminded, I don't have that in this, ma- in this manuscript, I'm just reminded of a small story that I've known for, for several years where uh, an American couple wanted to find out uh, what would be the inclination of the two-year-old kid. And so many cultures have this, I think, even, even in India we do this. What they did is uh, they put on the mat four things. They put a Bible and they put a knife, they put a pen, and uh, they also put a notebook so if the child, and they would leave the child to himself. So if the child would crawl and pick up the Bible, then uh, the parents would think he has the possibility of getting into ministry. If he would pick up a pen, they'd think probably he'd become a writer. If he'd pick up a knife, the rest is history. You know what it is. And there was also a wine bottle. Uh, so if he would pick up the wine bottle, probably he'd become an alcoholic. So from a slightly ajar door, the parents were watching what is, what's going to happen. And this two-year-old kid, he walked up or he crawled up to these four things. He took the Bible, tucked it under one of his arms, took the wine bottle, tucked that under another one of his arms, took the pen, put it into his pocket, took the knife, put that into his back pocket, and walked away. 
and the father looked at the mother and said good grief he is going to be a politician what happened in the elections last week and how some of us believers christians reacted to it and got involved in it really shocks me really shocks me when i watched them it seemed to me although they did not vocalize it that they really believed that the kingdom of god depended on who lives in the white house in fact don't we act that way sometimes we get involved so much with elections in india also that it really depended for the kingdom of god as to who's living in the parliament house it really doesn't it really doesn't i'm reminded of chuck colson's quote i think i think last time i spoke i quoted this but this time i do have it in my manuscript and it's very clear he said the kingdom of god will not arrive on air force 1 the kingdom of god will not arrive on air force 1 and may i add neither does it arrive on air india 1 he doesn't so we shouldn't talk debate vote and get involved in a way as though the kingdom of god really depended on who's flying air force 1 or who's flying air india 1 as sojourners and exiles we are called to do what is right we are called to do what is right even when evil seems to triumph our material materialism seems very appealing to us we are called to do what is right even when evil seems to triumph and materialism seems very appealing to us so what does right involve in our lives what does doing right involve in our lives it involves honoring the lord and making sure he is pleased with every one of the decisions that we make it involves honoring the lord and making sure that he is pleased with every one of the decisions that we make for some of us it may involve taking a pay cut and spending more time with our wives with our kids and staying more at home rather than at work for some of us it may involve a complete redefinition of what life in christ is for some of us it may involve a radical change of our lifestyles and for some of our sisters it may involve quitting their jobs or giving up on their jobs and staying at home just to raise godly kids for some of us men it may involve a radical understanding of what headship is in leading our families our wives our children and discipling them for some of us doing right involves wrenching ourselves from the world of entertainment and focusing more on Christ Jesus you and i must do what is right as citizens of another world as strangers and aliens in this world you and i are called to do what is right and we, we and we must leave the consequences to god because the lord is in control and he will vindicate us in his own time the lord is in control and he will vindicate us in his own time was it not james russell who lyricized these words and he said truth forever on the scaffold wrong forever on the throne now hear me please truth forever on the scaffold wrong forever on the throne but he said it is the scaffold that sways the future and behind the dim unknown standeth god in the shadows keeping watch keeping watch above his own 
truth may be on the scaffold for the moment and wrong could be on the throne, but it is a scaffold that has a truth that sways the future because God is watching over us and God is in control and one day truth will triumph and we as Christians for the moment are called to do what is right. We are called to do what is right. So in verses 1, 2, and 3 we saw that you must wait for the Lord to vindicate you in his time. Then there's a second thing we need to understand about the focus we ought to have as Christians living in light of his coming. And that is in verses 4 through 6. They say that you must look to the Lord as you wait for that day. You must look to the Lord as you wait for that day. With all of this knowledge about the coming day of the Lord, with all of the knowledge about the destruction of the wicked, with all of the knowledge about the prosperity and the healing of the righteous, what must we do to prepare ourselves for the day? What we must do is, we must do two things is what Malachi says, and the Lord wants, to, wants his people to prepare themselves before that day comes. And he told Malachi to prepare themselves in two specific ways and in two specific things. We'll keep that brief. Now follow along, please. First thing, the Lord instructed his people to return to the word of God. Verse 4, the Lord instructed his people to return to the word of God. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Remember the statutes or the law of my servant Moses. Take the phrase, remember the law, at the beginning of verse 4. What does it mean? What does it mean when God says, remember the law? It means don't forget about what happened at Horeb. Don't forget what happened at Horeb. How I brought you out of the land of Egypt. How I came down with power and glory on Mount Horeb. And revealed my law, revealed my love, my holiness, and my covenant with you of all people on earth. And taught you the way of life. And everlasting joy with good commandments and wise statutes and ordinances only for your good. So God is saying, remember all of that. Remember what happened. But it also means something else. It means that you're in a war. And the powers of darkness will constantly try to put out the light. And turn off the truth in your life. And the world and worldliness fights for your mind every day. And what God is saying is, I mean for you to fight back. Fight for the freedom of your own mind. Fight for the freedom of your mind and keep it pure. And God says there's only one hope to keep our minds pure, and that is remember the law. Remember the law. Remember the word of God. The second thing, the Lord promised to send his people Elijah, who will bring them back in repentance. The Lord promised to send his people Elijah, who will bring them back in repentance. Verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, if we had time, I would love to go into a detailed study about Elijah and how his first coming is and how Elijah is going to come again and all of that. But for now, I, I would just say that just as the expectation of Messiah's coming is in two advents, the first coming and the second coming, so also is the expectation of Elijah's coming. 
Now we all know that the first part of the prophecy was fulfilled with the coming of John the Baptist who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. But there is enough evidence to believe that neither he nor Jesus nor any of the New Testament writers believed that he was a final Elijah who's going to come. In fact, Jesus said, if you take it, he's the Elijah who is to come. But they did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, in the book of Revelation in chapter 11, it pictures two witnesses that will come at the end of the world. And one of them is most certainly the final Elijah because he has the power to shut up the sky just like the initial Elijah. But that's just the prophetic details. But what is the point of the passage that God is giving here? The point of the passage, this prophetic passage is this, that God is going to proceed wrath of judgment with a call of mercy. God is going to proceed at the judgment with a call of mercy. And he is going to send Elijah and ask people to repent. He's going to send Elijah and ask people to repent. There's this one final call before the judgment comes. So he sends messengers to Sodom. He sends messengers to Nineveh. He sends messengers to Jerusalem. He sends messengers to Bengaluru also. Asking people to repent. Asking them to come after his mercy and be saved before the judgment of the Lord comes. In fact, this morning it is no accident that you're here and listening to me speak about this particular topic. And I'm not biblical Elijah, but any speaker who stands here and asks people to repent because there's a day that is coming that's going to destroy the wicked is a kind of Elijah. And if you're listening to me this morning, may I say you're God's creation. You belong on his side. The bridge is built with a cross. The amnesty is signed with the blood of his son. Come back before the great and the terrible day of the Lord comes. Come back before the great and the terrible day of the Lord comes. The Lord promised to send people Elijah who will bring them back in repentance. The point is that you and I living in light of his coming must dwell in his word and live it out. You and I must dwell in his word and live it out. Now may I speak to you very personally here please about a church. And this came to light just last week for me. One of the things that we are really blessed with in CBF, one of the many things I should say, that we are really blessed with in CBF is the number of avenues we have to study the word of God. Just last week, I was called by an elderly man and he wanted to meet up with me, a well-known man and brother in denomination. He wanted to meet up with me and I went to meet him. So we chatted and halfway through the conversation, he said, do you go to CBF? I said, yes. I've heard a lot about CBF. And then I was getting ready to defend. And... And he said, I've heard that you have a lot of cell groups in CBF. And that only is a testimony of how important the word of God is to the church. Praise God. Praise God. We have Tuesday Bible study. We have a Wednesday Bible study. We have two Bible studies on Thursday. And just in case you miss any of these, because of your shift, 
We have a Bible study on Friday. We have a couple study right after the meeting. We have a single study. We have sisters fellowship. Just help me out if I miss something. I have, we have young lives, sorry, young wives, life or something. <laughs> and to top it all up, I praise God that there are men in this church who do a one-on-one studies just to disciple people. I think God is going to hold us accountable if we don't take this seriously. Because the very man who praised our church also said, not many churches have it. And we don't realize it. We don't realize how blessed we are to have so many avenues. What hurts me and concerns me really is the silly reasons that our believers, friends in church give for not making it to a particular meeting. Some of us are not even regular to church. Sunday mornings. If we go this week, it's all right to skip next week because we went last week, isn't it? In a month, we go for one cell meeting. That's enough. My dear friends, I'm not speaking carelessly here, but I speak with concern and love for you. And I've talked to some of you personally as well. We are not doing the Lord a favor. We are not doing the Lord a favor. We must take these avenues seriously. If we can spend time and clearly plan out when we have to go on a holiday and never miss it, if we can spend time and calculate and book tickets for a movie and never miss it, we can also plan our week and not miss any Bible study. It is possible. Let's take the word of God seriously. Let's dwell in the word and live it out as well. Let's take the word of God seriously. Just a short story for you as as an encouragement. In 1964, the Romanian government released religious and political prisoners. And some of you may love this story. Some of you may have read it as well. Um, one of them was Richard Wormbrand. And Richard Wormbrand had spent nearly three of his 14 years in a solitary confinement in a prison. He had never seen a book. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, I mean, he, he wrote a book called In God's Underground, and in, in which Richard Wormbrand describes, describes an incident where there was a new prisoner by the name of Avram who arrived in prison. And his upper body was completely in a cast. Upper body completely in a cast. And he was in a lot of pain. And all of a sudden he arrives and from beneath the cast he pulls out a tattered book, a piece of book. And they had never seen book in a long time and they opened the book to find out it is the Gospel of John. And Richard Wurmbrand writes this in his book. He said, I took the book in my hand and no life-saving drug could have been more precious to me than that. No life-saving drug could have been more precious to me than that. Just the Gospel of John, a tattered piece. Then he took that book, they read it and read it again and again. They had group studies in that dungeon 
and they memorized the gospel of John completely in those years. How many Bibles do we have in our homes? Just in case we don't understand the ESV or the NASB, which is only for theologians, we also have the NIVs. But we don't look at them. We don't take time to go to the Word of God. We need to dwell in the Word of God and we need to live it out as well. So what's the point of this morning's sermon? The whole point, the whole passage basically says, you must look to the Lord as you wait for the day when he will honor you. You must look to the Lord as you wait for the day when he will honor you. You must be completely occupied with the word and live like an alien and stranger in this world. Two things we saw. You must wait for the Lord to vindicate you in his time. Number two, you must look to the Lord as you wait for that day, the day of judgment to come. My final illustration, and I'll be through, and thank you so much for your patience. King George VI, in his Christmas Day broadcast in um, 1939, he quoted this poem, not knowing that cancer was taking his life away. And he said this, listen to me please. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than the light and safer than any known way. The man replied, put your hand into the hand of God and that shall be to you better than the light and safer than any known way. Let's pray. I hope that the Lord has spoken to us this morning and uh, let's look at our own hearts and make the necessary changes in light of what the word is. Father God, we want to thank you for this prophetic book written centuries ago and yet so poignantly and clearly speaks to us, to our need this morning. We want to thank you for your word, O Lord, that looks into our hearts, that lays our hearts bare. But we also want to thank you for the word that gives us hope in Christ Jesus, that we can repent today of our sin and set our lives on the right course with the help of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray for myself and I pray for our dear church. Pray, O Lord, that every one of us would take our salvation with utmost seriousness and utmost care. As we heard this morning from your word, help us to take the word of God very seriously. Help us to dwell in it as we look forward to your coming. Father, we want to uh, submit the single study as well into your hands. Pray, O Lord, that everything that happens there would happen for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name.